You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Welcome everyone to Teller from Jerusalem, Season 2, Episode 27. Following the sequence of our cycle, this will be an installment in our character series, the first and at least a two-part installment regarding shaming others. The concluding episode will not air until August 2nd, 2023, and then finally, we will go on our summer recess. As many of you know, I am an educator, and they say that you go into education for two reasons, July and August. Time-wise, our recess will be the same length as a summer break. We were just going to extend it until after the Jewish holidays and resume, please God, on October 18 with what I am telling you already now, will be a dynamite podcast. As is often the case, my primary source is Rabbi Telushkin's masterwork, Code of Jewish Ethics. In this episode, we'll be making reference to two books by Telushkin. Judaism's strictures against humiliating others are often violated in today's society when, when newspapers, how much more so social media, broadcast scandalous information about public figures that the public has no need to know. And thus, from Judaism's perspective, no right to know. Let's take a listen to Nick Talks on British news show GB News, where they interview their print news presenter, Andrew Doyle. The new way we have found of humiliating people in public. I think uh, what you were saying points to a very important truth, which is that there is something in human nature that does enjoy the humiliation of others, and there's nothing new about that. What is new is that we live in a digital age where everyone is online, and so what has happened is social media has uh, brought those baser instincts to the fore, and all that cancel culture is is this kind of a retributive uh, system where you publicly shame or boycott or, or, or attempt to destroy someone's livelihood or reputation, and, and largely that is engineered through, through social media. And I think it's, large, it's often misunderstood as people just criticising those in power. Actually, the people who get affected by cancel culture the most are those who are not in power, people who aren't famous, uh, people who, are, who have no resources to protect themselves, the money to protect themselves, uh, and they are thrown out um, for the wolves online. And it's not a pleasant experience, but as you say, uh, it is possible to, to ride it out and, and get beyond it and move beyond it. It isn't for life. Now, we'll talk to Nick Buckley about how he managed to pull that off. But just on the point about the, the locality and the reach of modern-day cancelled mm. culture, as you say, it's as old as the hills. Yeah, yeah. You can go back to the Colosseum and people being tortured for public entertainment, how gruesome. But actually, you were limited, your humiliation, and worse, was yes. limited to the the capacity of the Colosseum. Now, it's, it's everywhere and forever. And it's slightly worse in a way, because um, in terms of the punishments of the past, um, that typically it would be a crime that you committed or something like that. The, the problem, and one of the key features of modern-day cancel culture in the digital age is that Onto often... process. It's, yeah, this, this is... They bypass any due process at all. They, they are judge and jury, but also it's over typically very innocuous things. It can be just an unfashionable opinion. It can be something you've done inadvertently. It, and that's, that's the sort of key difference. And often people are dragged through. I mean, take someone like Tim Hunt, uh, the Nobel Prize winning biochemist. Now, he told a joke which was then misrepresented by a journalist 
for whatever reasons, I don't know what her reasons could possibly be, misrepresented online. By the time he'd got home, he'd lost his fellowship and everyone was attacking him online. But, but it was just a joke. It was, just, it was completely innocuous. And it just goes to show that these things can escalate because of the, the, the global reach of social media. And because, because it doesn't need to be true, it just satiates that kind of collective bloodlust of the online mob. The online mob is accurate terminology, and we're even going to give Dr. Phil a chance to briefly weigh in. Well, it seems like everywhere you turn these days, there's another person being filmed by a stranger at their worst moment. Everybody's got a camera. And then the video is posted online for all the world to see. The sad irony is that in researching this podcast and looking for quotations or clips, as I always do, I found to my profound chagrin that the two clips that I just aired were the only ones I could find, in all honesty, it was not a scientific or a fully exhaustive search, that condemned the public humiliation. Everything else lauded it, such as... Today, we're going on a cringe binge with some good old funny public humiliation clips. There are actually websites and countless videos of people being publicly humiliated that are viewed by audiences, and I could not make this up, that derive pleasure from seeing someone else embarrassed. To me, this would be as enticing as ingesting dirt, and this does not augur well for our society. Before the clip insertions, we said that Judaism's strictures against humiliating others are often violated in today's society when? When political candidates divulge embarrassing and irrelevant information about their opponents when people poke fun at another person's physical or mental handicaps, or call someone by an unpleasant nickname, when fraternities impose hazing procedures on those wishing to join, when teachers ridicule students, when lawyers demean opposing witnesses and cast doubt on the veracity of their testimony, even when they have reason to believe that it is true. The Ethics of the Fathers teaches that the golden rule applies to the realm of dignity and honor, your friend's dignity should be as precious to you as your own. And furthermore, just as a man would not wish an evil report spread about his wife and children, so he should not wish an evil report spread about his fellow wife, his fellow's wife and children. In short, just as we hate for ourselves and for those dear to us to be humiliated, we must take care not to humiliate others. Do not mention an incident that will embarrass the person about whom it is being told. Maimonides writes, don't relate a matter, they'll bring another shame. This includes alluding indirectly to something that only he will understand. For example, if someone you know was involved in a scandal in Detroit, avoid talking about Detroit in, the pers in that person's presence. The Talmud goes so far as to prohibit mentioning any object or incident that may cause pain to someone else. Never mock someone's past misbehavior. Or, as the Talmud says, you may not say to someone, it is forbidden to say, remember your past and earlier deeds. A contemporary example is revealing the former criminal behavior of someone who is now leading an ethical, law-abiding life or making it known so as to embarrass that person's relatives. Here's quite a striking example. In 1959, a prominent businessman donated half a million dollars to a university in St. Louis, Missouri. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch assigned reporters to write a feature about him. Reporters soon discovered that the man had served three prison terms, totaling almost 10 years for forgery, larceny, and issuing fraudulent checks. In the 35 years since he had left prison, his record had been spotless. In fact, 
the FBI had cleared him for defense-related work. More significantly, there was no reason to believe that any of his current money, including the half million dollars he had donated to the university, had been earned illegally. Nonetheless, the reporters headlined the article, which initially was supposed to be complimentary. So-and-so makes a benevolent, magnanimous donation. Rather, they wrote, quote, Maine Universal Match owner is ex-convict, the man's wife and son, both of whom did not know of his earlier criminal record, denounced the piece as vicious, to which Raymond Crowley, the paper's managing editor, responded, I think the stories simply speak for themselves. The Talmud's moral standard differs markedly from Crowley's and that of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. The Talmud teaches if a person is penitent, it teaches it is forbidden to say to him, remember your earlier deeds. Needless to say, it's even more cruel to spread embarrassing reports about the person to others when his or her subsequent behavior has been exemplary. What is even more shameful is that the St. Louis Post-Dispatch article was harmful to far more people than just a man and his family. It sent a very demoralizing message to everyone who has had tried to undo their past misdeeds. It told them that no matter how hard they try, through their hard work, charitable contributions, or anything that constitutes doing good, they will forever be linked to the worst acts in their lives. They can never win back their good name. Would this alone make a person feel that there is little point in changing their ways? And as we know too well, people who come out of jail and turn around their lives are the exception and hardly the rule. It is in this context I can bring up tangentially two stories that have earned media attention in line with the rule Dog bites man is not news, it is when man bites dog that it becomes a news item. We begin with the mega-successful Larry Miller, who rose to the pinnacle of corporate America, but never mentioned his criminal past, including the fact that he murdered an innocent fellow. Larry Miller climbed the corporate ladder to become the head of Nike's Jordan brand, raising it from a $150 million annual revenue to $3 billion yearly. Yet all this time kept his murder conviction a secret from his employers. At the urging of his daughter, he decided to come clean and wrote a book entitled Jump, revealing his past that he was remarkably able to keep concealed as he rocketed up the corporate ladder. Here's an interview with Larry Miller from the Straight Talk News Show with Laurel Porter. Miller became one of the most influential black professionals in the nation. But Miller said he was leading dual lives, holding a deep, dark secret he describes as the gangster hiding in the businessman. He revealed the secret in a book he co-wrote with his daughter, Layla, entitled Jump. In it, he describes a murderous night when he was a 16-year-old gang member in Philadelphia, drunk on cheap wine, looking for redemption for the stabbing death of a fellow gang member. He writes in the book, the corner of 53rd and Locust was halfway between Cedar Avenue and Cobbs Creek. From a block away, he saw, we saw a kid standing on the corner. We approached and circled him. I reached behind, pulled out a gun, pointed it at the kid, squeezed the trigger, and shot him in the chest. He dropped. We turned away and kept on walking. In my head, it was one down. I was on the hunt for another. Miller was arrested for the homicide and served time in prison, and later more time for armed robberies. But somehow, he was able to keep his criminal past a secret as he eventually went on to lead a successful life as a marketing and sports executive. 
but that secret would haunt him for 50 years. You don't mention his name in the book, Edward David White. Why? And you also didn't tell the family ahead of time that the book was coming out, so they were kind of surprised and upset. Why didn't you include his name, and why didn't you notify them? In my opinion, Laurel Porter, the anchor, has asked a powerful question, and I believe that Miller's answer is not satisfactory. I do believe his remorse is sincere, but it was unconscionably late in coming. Indeed, the New York Times found the victim's family before he ever got around to it. Mind you, this is an individual who could afford to hire 1,000 private investigators, but did not. We should have done it from the very beginning. There's no question about it. We should have reached out to them from the very beginning. But when we realized that and we started to try to reach out to them, uh, the New York Times found them before we did. But the good thing about that is that um, once the New York Times article came out, we were able to track them down through the reporter who, who wrote the uh, article and connect with them and contact them and reach out. And, and we were able to, that, that, that allowed us to be able to meet with them. The story of Larry Miller, and by the way, his story can also be found on the Stephen Dubner podcast, People I Mostly Admire, episode 64, brings to mind the story of Chris Wilson, whose story can be found in his book, The Master Plan, which is a book that I am not recommending. Albeit Wilson's story is also an incredible tale of a youth who grew up in a bad neighborhood infested with crime, drugs and gangs, and rife with homicide located in Washington, D.C. Wilson had an absent father and a mother that he claimed loved him, but I saw no evidence of this throughout the book. Wilson also shot dead a man when he was a teenager, for which he was sent to jail with a life sentence. It is remarkable and admirable how Wilson rose up against the oppressive environment of jail, committed himself to an education, and the master plan to rehabilitate. But what troubles me is that after he gets a second chance and is freed, ultimately becoming an entrepreneur, about which he is most boastful, we do not hear a word of remorse regarding the murder that he committed, or even trying to make restitution with the victim's family. All of this was an aside to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch expose, which would make one believe that there is little point in changing your ways if ultimately society will come and haunt you for your rehabilitated past. The cruel irony regarding the St. Louis philanthropist is that years earlier criminal courts justifiably punished a criminal for doing evil. Years later, the newspaper was punishing him for doing good. As Rabbi Joseph Telushkin highlights in his remarkable book, Words That Hurt, Words That Heal, this is not the only time that the St. Louis Post-Dispatch went out of its way to humiliate people. In April of 1988, John C. Shepard was offered a post in the, as Deputy Attorney General in the Reagan administration. Shepard was a widely respected St. Louis attorney and a past president of the American Bar Association. The day after he was nominated, the Post-Dispatch published a story about him that contained the charge by Denise Sinner, and we shan't discuss the appropriateness of Denise's last name, an ex-bookkeeper in Shepard's law firm, that he had an affair with her. In fact, Sinner had embezzled $147,000 from the firm and at a recently concluded trial had claimed that Shepard had allowed her to steal the money because of their relationship. The jury had rejected Sinner's rather implausible defense and convicted her. The Post-Dispatch reported that Sinner, who had not yet been sentenced now desired to testify at Shepard's confirmation hearings. Within days, her charges, which were totally without foundation, were being headlined in other parts of the country. For example, on page one of the New York Daily News, 
Two weeks later, the newspaper noted that its reports, reporters had investigated Sinner intensively and found that nearly every significant detail she provided about her background had been proven false. From the perspective of ethics, as opposed to the Post-Dispatch's journalistic practice, the investigation should have been conducted before the article containing Sinner's defamation above Shepard appeared. By the time the newspaper's correction was made, Shepard had withdrawn himself as a nominee, citing the intolerable pressures on himself and his family. Ten days later, the judge who sentenced Sinner called her a pathological liar. So that's it for our first installment on shaming others. The next concluding installment will drop two months from now, God willing. Thank you very much to our wonderful and very clever sound engineer, Howard the Cheetah Felsen. Please spread the word about our podcast. Send a link to your friend or relative, and they'll be grateful to you for the recommendation. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes a never-fail approach how to inculcate good character. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode, and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com. You can find more details about this show and other useful information. Check out the site store, and just by inserting the TFJ code, you will receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced price of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to tellerfromjerusalem.com. 